Hello and welcome to the first episode of the All Things Worship podcast. I'm your host, Marty Reardon. And I want to start this first episode by simply unpacking very briefly what we hope to accomplish with these podcasts. Uh, A dear friend, Chris McDaniel, said that when he first met his mother-in-law, she advised him that you can get by on charm for about 15 minutes, but after that, you better know something. And I know what that feels like as a worship leader coming into ministry. We all probably know what that feels like a little bit because we might possess enough raw talent or ability or passion even uh, to wow the masses for a while, to lead the songs uh, in a way that's compelling. And quite frankly, because of the need of talented worship leaders within the church currently, Uh, We, as worship leaders, are fast-tracked into leadership because of the gifting and ability uh, without regard to perhaps our character. And so what happens after the 15 minutes of charm wears off? What happens when the realities of life hit us, when the challenges and the uh, kind of the shine of ministry wears off, and uh, the challenges cannot be overcome with talent and passion alone? And so we've created this podcast to be a resource for worship pastors uh, who want to grow beyond simply just being charming and talented and want to maybe grow a little bit deeper in their understanding of what it means to be a pastor, to live into that calling, as well as those who want to grow deeper in their walk with the Lord. And so we're going to cover everything from spiritual formation topics to biblical theology of worship topics. And now we also recognize, uh, bringing things down to the real grassroot level, that there are a lot of on-the-job realities that rarely get addressed or adequately talked about when it comes to being worship pastors. In my own journey, I had to figure so much out on my own. Um, There was a lot of uh, phone calls to other worship leaders and a lot of uh, just scratching your head and Google searches, but there was was a lot of trial and error and trial by fire, Uh, some successes, but more often than not, a lot of failures. And, And what I'm referring to are just the pragmatics of being a worship pastor. Everything from how do I take care of my voice to how do I recruit and train and equip volunteers and how do I actually care for the souls of my volunteers? That's, that's a big one. Uh, even to more the sort of philosophical questions of how do I, as a worship pastor, bring about change in culture? How do I bring about change in a culture that's already fairly established? Um, that's a good one. How do I evaluate liturgies? How do I look at my current orders of service and say, are these actually helping us live into the mission and vision of this church in a biblical way? Uh, Also, uh, relationship dynamics. How do we as worship pastors relate with our senior pastors? What does that dynamic look like? How do we understand the role of servant within that when there are things that we want to see happen within the context of our roles? And so we want this podcast to be a resource that helps equip you vocationally as well as personally and in your walk with the Lord. And so with that in mind, let's jump into this first episode. In this first episode, I want to unpack what I have identified as four biblical principles of corporate worship. Worship is formational, it's narrative, it's mediated, and it's ethical. Let's look at formation here first. Worship is formational. It shapes our people's understanding of Scripture. It shapes their understanding of God. It shapes their worldview as a whole. And that's just because... We are creatures that are always being formed. Dallas Willard says everyone has a formation and is being formed. So it's not a matter of if you're being formed, but more of a question of what are you being formed into. So you can look at your life and see I had a specific formation growing up, whether it was a 
non-Christian home or it was a Christian home, there is a way in which we see the world and a way in which we engage with the world that is part of our formation. And we see this in Scripture. Matthew 6, Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is a formational text that's reminding us that what we value and what we love is what we live into. It's what shapes and forms us. We see a very stark picture of this in Psalm 115. I'll read that. It says, Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So we see this picture of idols made by human hands, and the worship of those idols creates, or rather forms, the person worshiping to be just like the idol. So you are what you worship. You are exactly what you worship, and you become what you worship. And so understanding that all of us worship, and that all worship, sacred worship, secular worship, is formative in shaping who we are. And so ultimately, it's not a question of simply better thinking, uh, but also of acquiring better habits uh, or better liturgies, creating liturgies or orders of service with intentionality. Jamie Smith unpacks this quite well in his Desiring the Kingdom and Imagining the Kingdom books. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of You Are What You Love. He distills both of those books down into this one edition. He says that we are what we love because we do what we love. And so we've just looked at that in the Psalms, that worship is actually going to form and shape us into the object of worship. But it also forms and shapes our desires, We're not formed only through thoughts. Uh, Anybody who has tried to perhaps get a download of biblical understanding or just merely a greater knowledge of doctrine can attest to the reality that knowing more about the Bible does not naturally mean I'm going to be a better person. It just means that I'll know more about the Bible. And so we have to understand that with our liturgies and our orders of service in our churches, particularly as worship pastors. We love at Trinity to engage the mind. We want to be people of substance and of depth. But we also recognize that information alone about God and who God is does not transform lives. It does not cause us to be people that are growing into the image of Jesus Christ. And so we're not formed only through our thoughts, but through our practices, our Sunday liturgies, our habits. And there's no formation, there's no transformation without repetition. There's uh, no such thing as a quick fix here. Practice makes permanent. So this idea of our liturgies being consistent week in and week out, that's going to be very key for us, uh, particularly in a culture and in a church culture that values the new and the shiny. There's this idea of a long obedience in the same direction to uh, steal that from Eugene Peterson. So there's no P90X for our souls. There's no quick get in shape in three weeks thing. There's this idea that we are shaped by liturgies, we're shaped and formed by habits and practices, and that takes time. That's the first thing. The other thing is for us as worship pastors to understand that because liturgy has a power, we need to understand how are we actually engaging in the formation of our people. 
So the hope would be that when we have worshiped God each Sunday, that our people leave our buildings changed. Um, It's not really a question of have we formed them or have we helped form them, but a question of how has our liturgy shaped their worldview? How has our order of service, the songs that we sing, the way we engage scripture, how have those things encouraged our people to a more robust understanding and awareness of who God is, who they are, and their role in the world? Hopefully we've been given a picture of what we should desire and are actually filled with a a hope that we can participate in the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing about formation within us and in the world around us. So what I encourage you to do is a little bit of homework. So we say in our churches that we value all sorts of things. We might say that we're a, we value Bible or we value, we're Trinitarian or we, we value mission reconciliation. Now, the reality is that your order of service, your liturgy, will reveal what you are actually about. And so the homework is twofold. The first is to review your order of service. Go through each movement. Begin to identify the formational message within it. List it all out. We do a prayer. We have a moment of silence. We sing X number of songs. Maybe we pray again. When, it, when do we take up the offering? Is there Eucharist? Is there a communion meal each week? Do we do that quarterly? How, how does your order of service look? and begin to do uh, what Jim Collins would say is an autopsy without blame. At this point, we're not looking, no one's in trouble. We're just simply trying to say, how are we actually forming people? It's, it's a bit like looking at your budget. Where's my money going? Wherever your money goes is what you actually value. And whatever we give our time to on our Sundays and our orders of service is what we value, and therefore what we value is shaping people. So we may say that we value scripture, But after looking at our order of service, come to find that, you know what, we're not actually reading very much scripture in our services. Or we might say, hey, we are fully Trinitarian. But as we look at our order of service, we might realize the language that we use or visual aids or the lack of visual aids we use um, actually maybe don't support a Trinitarian worldview as robustly as we thought. So take a look at that, do that homework. And then what you can do is write down what you're actual values are, what you're actually living into, and compare that with what you would hope to be your aspirational values, the things that you want to be about as a church, and then begin to prayerfully make strides into amending your liturgy, your order of service. The other component of that, particularly for worship pastors, is to go through our song lists and identify each song's emphasis. I actually have an Excel spreadsheet where I do this and try to update it periodically. But I go through each song and identify what is the focus of this song. And so this song's going to be about the sovereignty of God. This song's going to be about the cross and redemption. I'm just going to go through the spreadsheet. I'm going to list these things out and create these headers. This song is about God as Father. This song is about Jesus, the Son of God. Um, and I might look and go, you know what? we actually don't have very many songs on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This exercise will reveal things like that. Or, man, 90% of our songs are all about the cross. Where is the renewal of all things? Or we are singing all about the Holy Spirit and experiencing the gifts of the Spirit, but we don't have songs that deal with lament. Where's the lament in our service? Where's the ability to give our church permission to grieve? So go through your song list and begin to kind of see where the blind spots. 
that's going to be very helpful in helping us as worship pastors be intentional about the ways that we are personally engaging in corporate worship and designing liturgies that are going to help our people be intentional about how they're being formed. So that's number one. The second biblical principle I want to look at is this idea that corporate worship is a narrative, or rather it should be a narrative. Biblical worship reminds us that God's story begins and ends with God himself. Now this is key in forming our people as well, because it reminds us that we are not the center of attention, that our story, as important as it is, is a story that gets unfolded into God's greater cosmic story. And in a culture where I'm the center of attention, where I and my experience is the center of attention, this is actually a countercultural reality. So in God's story, as revealed through the narrative of Scripture, we see a God who is located. We see a God who is personal and knowable, a God who is communal. That is the gift of understanding that corporate worship communicates a larger narrative. So the entirety of Scripture is what we have to focus on here. So connecting back to, in particular, our song uh, homework that you're going to be doing, where you're looking at the songs that you sing, I'd like to unpack briefly what Abraham Kuyper has referred to as a reductionist view of the gospel. So he basically unpacks that the full biblical narrative is a creation, then the fall, redemption, and then the restoration of all things. And so what we tend to only wrestle with are these themes of the fall and redemption. And we often leave out the good creation. In Genesis, Scripture says that God created and it was good. He said it was really good. Now, not long after the fall happens, but before the fall is a good creation. Where are we missing that in our liturgies? Where are we missing that in our songs? Now, we have the good creation, the fall, redemption, the cross, and then we have the restoration of all things. So we have this new heaven and new earth that have come down. We have this renewal of things. Where do we see that in our liturgies? Where do we see that on our orders of service or the songs that we sing? It's, it's quite possible that we might be focusing on one or just a couple of parts of the gospel and not the entirety of the narrative. And so take a look at that when you're looking at your order of service and the songs that you sing. We don't want to have, as Dallas Willard said regarding this, a truncated gospel, but we want to have the full gospel, the full narrative. The idea of the narrative being something that we need to embody in our orders of service is important because worship biblically, as we see in Scripture, actually remembers the past. Robert Weber, in his Planning Blended Worship book, says that when we hear of God's actions in the past, we interpret God's past actions and apply them to our current dislocation. That's such a great reminder that the way God has acted in the past and saved and redeemed in the past is the same way that he can act and redeem in my present situation and circumstance today. And let's look at that briefly. So in the garden, as we said, there was a good creation than the fall. And right after the fall, the Lord puts angels to guard the entrance to the garden. He did not want Adam and Eve to be permanently in a fallen state should they now eat of the tree of life. And so you have these angels with flaming swords preventing them Access to God was now prohibited, or at least easy access to God was prohibited. Now we look forward into 1 Kings and we see instructions for worship. And 
in First Kings 6, they're instructed to weave images of cherubs, of angels, on the curtain that actually separates the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. So here we see a reminder, even on the curtains themselves, that immediate access to God is restricted. And now we look into Matthew 27, and we see that the curtain was torn from top to bottom through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so how does that narrative play out in our churches? Well, I will say simply that if you have a cross in your church, which hopefully you do, all of our crosses should serve as reminders, tangible reminders, that access to God is no longer restricted. Whereas Israel would look and see those cherubs on the curtains preventing immediate access into the Holy of Holies, we are able to look at a cross and say, thank you, Jesus. God, access to him and his presence is no longer restricted. As it says in Hebrews, we have boldness to enter into the holy place through Jesus Christ. That's an example of the narrative. Now, we also see it in the Passover meal in Exodus 12. Jews still to this day actively remember in great detail the Passover meal because the narrative of biblical worship remembers the past. Now, of course, we see in the New Testament that Christ is our Passover lamb. And so for us at Trinity, or those of you who practice Eucharist every week or a communion meal, the communion meal is our Passover. So by it, we remember our Lord's death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension. So it's, the meal itself is a tactical, formative, narrative expression that reminds us that we have been redeemed. Weber goes on to say, in exactly the same way the Jewish people celebrate their liberation from Egypt, the church celebrates its salvation in Christ through hymns and songs, scripture, sermons, and the prayer of thanksgiving over the bread and wine. Such a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, we also see in scripture that biblical worship is not a narrative in the sense of just remembering the past, but it's actually also something that is physical. It's something that is dramatic. Uh, there's a word for this, anamnesis, and it just it's a Greek word for remembering, meaning make present or making it come alive, making it real. It's more than just a mental recollection, but it's remembering with your whole self, your body, your whole mind, your spirit. And so looking at your order of service, where are we giving opportunity for our congregations to engage in the drama of Scripture, in the drama of this narrative of the gospel? Do we provide opportunities for there to be responses after scripture reading? Um, obviously, singing is one of the obvious ones. Um, are we receiving communion in the Eucharist? Do we invite our people to process and come forward and literally physically walk forward to a table? Do we have a table um, or are we receiving communion uh, in an individual way? Um, do we exchange the peace? Do you follow a, an order of service that allows you to exchange the peace? These are all ways that we are providing opportunities for our congregants to engage in the drama of Scripture. Now, the other component of the narrative of Scripture is it reminds us of who God is so that it guards us against idolatry. That's huge here. We tend to be very forgetful. Um, Calvin says we're idol-making factories. Uh, we tend to make idols pretty quickly when we forget who we are and when we forget who God is. And we see this played out very clearly in Psalm 105 and in Psalm 106. In Psalm 105, the psalmist says, Give thanks to the Lord and tell of all of his wondrous works. Make known everything that he has done to all peoples. 
And then Psalm 105 goes to unpack those amazing deeds. Psalm 106, we see a very sad turn of events. The psalmist says, Our fathers did not consider your wondrous works, but soon they forgot. And after they forgot, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox. And we see that language echoed in Romans. that They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. So here, Scripture paints another vivid and terrible image of what we worship when we neglect to remember God and his saving acts. Now, another thing that remembering the narrative arc of Scripture does for us in worship is it cultivates in us gratitude. So let's unpack this briefly. Psalm 50, uh, the Lord says, do I eat bulls? And obviously the answer is no, but he says, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Call on me, I will deliver you, glorify me. In other words, have those false gods saved you? What about the gods mentioned in Psalm 106? Did they save? Did they redeem? Offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies God. When we remember who God is, we remember his saving deeds, it cultivates gratitude. And gratitude can naturally cultivate a sense of humility as well. Um, it undoes our pride. We remember that we are a desperate people needing salvation and that he is a good God, willing and eager and able to save us. So this idea of gratitude and humility go hand in hand with remembering who God is within our worship. So worship is a dramatic narrative that we engage in to celebrate the fullness of who God is and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will continue to do in our lives. Well, thank you so much for listening to this first episode of the All Things Worship podcast. We hope you'll join us for future episodes. For more information on All Things Worship, visit us at allthingsworship.org.